Thank you very much indeed, Nick, and thank you uh, to Regent's Park, Regent's Park College once again for hosting us on, on this occasion. Um, today is the 17th Memorial Lecture uh, in honour of David Nichols. It also marks the, the 20th anniversary of his death. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that we have some members of David and Gillian's uh, family here to, to commemorate the day with us. Um, as many of you will know, David Nichols was a great theologian, a political scientist, an expert of Caribbean societies. And in particular, he uh, was, and in many cases still is, one of the leading uh, commentators on Haiti. And so, uh, obviously, we're all aware of the news coming out of Haiti uh, over the last few days. And we have one of our former trustees, uh, Professor Paul Sutton, who will just say a few words and updates about Haiti and uh, the Haiti Support Group during the uh, drinks reception. Uh, and, and also, the trust will be making a donation to uh, the, um, the Haiti support and the Haiti relief uh, um, activities um, in coming up over the next few weeks. So we'd, uh, we will, we'll say something about that as well during the reception. Um, the David Nichols Memorial Trust uh, has a range of activities. And this lecture is uh, the highlight of the year. Um, and we, I'm very grateful and very glad we have Professor, Reverend Professor Chris Rowland here with us to, to, tonight. Um, as well as the annual lecture, we also uh, award uh, bursaries, uh, research grants to <coughs> scholars uh, who want to study the Caribbean, its diaspora. And um, again, I'm very glad that we have this year's award winner, Eve Hayes-Dirklaff, here to, tonight, who's doing her research in the Dominican Republic uh, over issues of citizenship, migration, uh, and in an area that I know would have been very close to David's personal and academic interests. Um, and the other two award winners uh, recently from last year, uh, Jack Webb and Melissa Bennett, have uh, just come to the completion of their research, which was in part funded by the Nichols Trust. Uh, Jack uh, went to Trinidad and part of his research, he was looking through the David Nichols uh, papers collected at the University of West Indies in St. Augustine. So uh, David's work spreads wide and far uh, in the printed page um, and also in the archive. So here at Regis Park College we have uh, some of his papers and works collected here and uh, also in Trinidad. So two good, good, two good places to follow up David's uh, notes and, uh, and, and archive materials. Um, I'm also delighted, and there's lots of delight uh, 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 this evening, to uh, say thanks to some former trustees, uh, a couple of with us here tonight, um, John Muddyman and Robin Cohen, many of you will know, have put lots of energy and a lot of uh, great care into curating the trust over many years. They're fortunately not here with us tonight, uh, but Chris Rowland, the former trustee, and, uh, and Paul Sutton are here. So uh, thank you very much, and we'd just like to say publicly thank you very much for all the effort you've put in and, and kept the trust going. And I think we're getting to stage now with a new fleet of, uh, of uh, trustees arriving, uh, Kate Quinn and David Lambert, um, that the trust is now on a sustainable basis to provide uh, the annual lecture, but also grants for research in the Caribbean over the, over the coming years. So, on to tonight's uh, lecture. Um, Chris uh, Rowland uh, was born in Doncaster, Doncaster Grammar School. Um, and he studied at Jesus College, Cambridge, where he's now living after um, retiring there. He was the uh, Dean Island's uh, um, professor of, I'm going, this is one, I knew there's one word I stumble. It's normally inaugural, but it's not. This one is exegesis, but I've done it properly, haven't I? Thank you. Um, so Chris, um, in 1991 he was appointed uh, University of Oxford, uh, Dean Island's professor of the exegesis of the Holy Scripture. He uh, trained um, as a, 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 a priest uh, um, in, in Cambridge, but also has been the priest in Newcastle upon Tyne uh, during uh, the 1970s and, and um, up until 1979, I think. Yeah. So it's a great pleasure to welcome um, Chris here tonight. He was a close colleague and friend of David Nichols. And it's with great delight uh, that I think you're going to intertwine your, your intellectual, your theological interests with something of David's own interests. And, and uh, in the introduction to the book, Deity and Domination, David Nichols writes himself uh, in a prologue, well, introducing the book. He said, this book will be embracing four centuries, two continents, and several disciplines. 
This study is something of an adventure. So I'll let Chris continue the adventure tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. And it's, it's great to see some uh, old friends and to, to make some new friends this afternoon. It's a very special privilege for me to be able to give this lecture in memory of David Nichols in the year which, as David said, we mark the 20th anniversary of his death. And I would like to thank the trustees greatly for their invitation. Before meeting David, I'd heard much about him from mutual friends, especially about his interest in the social context of theology, so brilliantly illuminated in his books, Deity and Domination and God and Government in an Age of Reason. It's a way of doing historical theology to which David was as committed as I am, and he gave us all a brilliant example of how to do it, for which I shall always be grateful. The final volume of his trilogy, which I've just been uh, uh, hearing a little bit more about from David, um, which remained incomplete at his untimely death, would have taken the subject of the story back to the 17th century. And uh, my friend uh, Robert Morgan's obituary uh, mentions this. As far as I know, and this uh, is uh, uh, hot off the press as it were, and the most recent conversation, no evidence has yet turned up of any drafts for this volume among the papers, uh, not only in the uh, David Nichols Library here at Regents, but elsewhere as well. My friendship with David started with my attendance at his Halcyon Lectures in Cambridge in 1986, out of which came, initially, Deity and Domination. These offered the fruits of a lifetime's thinking on politics and theology. After one of his lectures, I remember our conversation over a meal at my home, David typically turning up in his poncho and later in the evening puffing his Havana cigar. In correspondence I had with him shortly after that, he asked me to participate in a series on the theology uh, in social context which he was hoping to publish with Blackwell. And he suggested that we co-author a book on the Christian doctrine of salvation in context. We got to the planning stage, but it came to nothing because of a spell of ill health for me in the late 1980s. It's a poignant thing for me that David and I had lunch together in Oxford on the day before he died. I only wish that I could recall clearly the things we talked about on that occasion, but I guess they would have included matters relating to the influence of the social context of theology, which was a theme we came back to inevitably again and again. Not least my emerging interest in that theme as it related to political theology as a result of time that I had spent in Brazil. David pointed out in his proposal part of which is here on the screen here, for the Blackwell series on doctrines and social context, that most books written on the history and development of Christian doctrine adopt a rather narrow internal standpoint, looking at how doctrines have evolved as part of a process of theological debate, which, as he put it, and I quote his words, might have taken place on the moon. The only non-theological factors taken into account, he wrote, have been philosophical concepts, with a limited reference to issues like church-state relations. Rarely, he says, have such matters as economic structure, class relations, political rhetoric, and scientific modes of thinking been seen as relevant to the way in which Christians have thought about and expressed their beliefs in dogmatic form. Although it is often said 
in a general way that Christian doctrines are socially conditioned, little had been done to show with respect to particular doctrines how this is so. What David wanted to do in this series on doctrines in social context was why and how this is so. And he wanted to promote a series of books which could consider the way in which particular Christian doctrines have been influenced in their formulation and evolution by non-theological forces. So, the authors that he asked would attempt to show the importance of such cultural factors. I've already mentioned Bob Morgan's obituary uh, of David in, in The Independent in 1986. And Bob sums up well what he calls a recurring theme in David's writing on historical theology. And I quote his words. It's impossible for theologians first to get their theology right and only then draw social or ethical implications from it. Our theology, wrote Bob, is already soaked in where we stand, whether we recognize it or not. That is what David wanted to tease out. So, for example, in a proposal for the book which he suggested that he and I write on the influence of social context on the theology of salvation in Christian thought, to which he gave the provisional title Sweet Chariot, he included issues such as whether humans cooperated with God in bringing in the kingdom of God. The issue of the distinction between here and not here, now and not yet. He suggested exploring the way in which political vocabulary has often been used in stating doctrines of salvation, but also the reverse process in which everyday terminology incorporates political rhetoric influenced by theological ideas. He pointed out that ideas about salvation have deeply affected attitudes towards political and social action. For example, those of you salvation is concerned only with life after death are likely to see political activity as of secondary importance compared with the need to keep oneself unspotted from the world preparing for the next. Those, on the other hand, who believe that salvation involves a transformation of this world by human action, albeit in collaboration with God, however this may be understood, are likely to value political and social action highly as constituting a principal means for achieving salvation. While David wrote about radicalism and politics in his published books, he included hardly any discussion of two figures that I'm going to talk about a little today. Jared Wynne Stanley, who lived in the 17th century, and as far as I'm aware, nothing about William Blake. Two figures whose writings demonstrate so well the heart of his thesis about the political influence of theological language. So this lecture is meant as a compliment with an E and indeed a compliment with an I to David's work on the social context of theology. Blake famously wrote I quote, are not religion and politics the same thing? Brotherhood is religion. Words which aptly summarize both Wynne Stanley's and Blake's view of the relationship between Bible, religion, and politics. Wynne Stanley's and Blake's theologies are both testimony to the social context of theology and the political character of much of what they wrote in their respective critiques of contemporary religion and politics. Indeed, in Blake's case, the title of John Robinson's article of 1963, which you saw at a distance entitled Our Image of God Must Go, of which more anon, very neatly encapsulates the different ways in which both Wynne Stanley and Blake set about outlining a different kind of theology. In both cases, very much concerned with human community, and often criticizing the language of transcendence. In some ways, their texts, and in Blake's case, images, paved the way for some closing comments 
on their relation to modern radical theology. As I've said, Winstanley's writing gets only a passing mention in deity and domination. But, as I've indicated, Winstanley's writings offer one of the best examples of theology in context. After all, most of Winstanley's extant writings come from just before and shortly after Charles I's execution in January 1649. Much of it connected with the setting up of a digger colony of claiming the common land, first on George's Hill in April 1649, weeks after Charles's execution. If ever there was a kairos, an, a propitious moment in English history, when King Jesus would set up his fifth monarchy on earth, this was surely it, so many believed at the time. The radical nature of Winstanley's proposals and the action of him and his colleagues were intimately linked to that opportune time. For Winstanley and many of his contemporaries now indeed seemed to be the day of salvation. After 1652, however, Winstanley's political and theological writing, as far as we know, seems to have ceased. And he seems to have slipped back once more into a fairly bourgeois life in rural Surrey. But in most of his extant writings, the mix of the emphasis on social and political change, the emphasis of the experience of the divine within, and the suspicion of book learning, anticipating Blake's contrast between inspiration and memory, buttressed by a robust socio-political biblical interpretation, testify to his conviction about the possibility for political change as he put it, Christ rose among men and women. Winstanley was prompted by a revelation that he and his companions should dig the common land, thus claiming what they regarded as their rightful inheritance. Digging George's Hill is and I quote, to lay the foundation of making the earth a common treasury for all, both rich and poor, that everyone that is born in the land may be fed by the earth his mother that brought him forth, according to the reason that rules in creation, not enclosing any part into any particular hand, but all as one man, working together and feeding together as sons of one father, members of one family, not one lording over one another, but all looking upon each other as equals in the creation, so that our maker may be glorified in the work of his own hands, and that everyone may see God is no respecter of persons, but equally loves his whole creation. In other words, what he was doing and what his colleagues were doing was a sign of the social and political changes to come. When Stanley interpreted the story of the fall in Genesis 2 to 3 as an exposition of the ways in which individual desire gets institutionalized socially and politically. Those who coveted and possessed found a variety of ways, social, ideological and legal, to hang on to what they gained. In contrast to this, when Stanley regarded the moment in which he lived as an opportunity to enable a revolution in society to be organized, thereby anticipating the second coming of Christ, which, as I've said, he interpreted as the rising up of Christ in sons and daughters, when the earth may be made a common treasury for all. So, for Winstanley, the new Jerusalem is not some vague hope to be seen only hereafter, but to be established within creation. In two works written within a short time of each other, in 1648 and 1649, The Saint's Paradise and the New Law of Righteousness, we find enunciated some of Winstanley's most distinctive theological themes. The Saint's Paradise begins with a quotation from Jeremiah 31:34, They shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, 
from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. The treatise is in large part a challenge to those, and I use uh, Winstanley's term, professors, who may know the Bible well and its history, but who worshipped a God but neither knew who he was nor where he was. Winstanley denied the authenticity of even the most glorious preacher or professor of literal gospel, who may easily end up as the subtlest of hypocrites without knowing the indwelling Christ. Winstanley criticised those who buried their heads in study about what happened, I quote, in Moses' time, in the prophet's time, in the apostles' and in the son of man's time, without waiting to find light and power of righteousness to arise up within his heart. It's not knowledge of the words of the Bible that count, but experiential understanding of God. And here we've got a, a passage um, on the screen. It, it's, it is very possible, wrote Winstanley, that a man may attain to the literal knowledge of the scriptures and may speak largely of the history thereof and draw conclusions and raise many uses for the present support of a troubled soul. And yet, may be not only unacquainted with, but enemies to that spirit of truth by which the prophets and apostles writ. For it is not the apostles' writings, but the spirit that dwelt in them that did inspire their hearts, which gives life and peace to us all. Notice that uh, very subtle distinction between the writings and what they bear witness to. It's a theme which he comes back to again and again. He argued that the scriptures had been written by the experimental hand of shepherds, husbandmen, fishermen, and such inferior men of the world. Indeed, in language reminiscent of 20th century Latin American liberation theologians, Winstanley, echoing the Gospel of Matthew, stressed as the interpretive ability of those who match experience in the Bible. Thus, the plowman is in as good a position as the university scholar to understand God. So he says, Nay, let me tell you that the poorest man that sees his maker and lives in the light, though he could never read a letter in the book, dares throw the glove to all the humane learning in the world and declare the deceit of it, how it doth bewitch and delude mankind in spiritual things. Yet it is that great dragon that hath deceived the world, for it draws men from knowing the spirit to own bare letters, words, and histories for spirit. The light and life of Christ within the heart discovers all darkness and delivers mankind from bondage, and besides him there is no saviour. Indeed, also in anticipating the hermeneutical privilege of the poor found in liberation theology, Winstanley suggested that it was the poor and outcast who would be the instruments of change. I quote, The Father is now raising up a people to himself out of the dust, that is, out of the lowest and despised sort of people that are counted the dust of the earth, mankind, that are trod underfoot. And these, and from these, shall the law of righteousness break forth first. For the poor, they begin to receive the gospel, and plentiful discoveries of the Father's love flows from them, and the waters of the learned and great men of the world begins to dry up like the brooks in summer. And then he quotes uh, the verse that I've already mentioned, Matthew eleven twenty-five, where uh, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, uh, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things uh, to these babes and kept them from the wise and intelligent. Like William Blake after him, Winstanley emphasized the sight of the king of glory within which does not dispend, dis depend on what he calls the, the strength of memory, calling to mind what a man has read and heard, being able by a human capacity to join things together into a method and through the power of free utterance to hold it forth before others as the fashion of students is in their sermon work. It is what he calls the inward power of feeling experience which counts, which even a plowman that was never bred in their universities may have. In his theological exposition, 
when Stanley mounted an explicit critique of a transcendent theology. He wrote, do not look for God now as formerly you did to be a place of glory beyond the sun, moon and stars, nor imagine a divine being you know not where, but you see him ruling within you, and not only in you, but you see and know him to be the spirit and power that dwells in every man and woman, yea, in every creature according to his orb within the globe of creation. So, he writes that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about resurrection within oneself. Similarly, the ascension is Christ arising in the midst of men and women to assist them deal with all their shortcomings. It is the indwelling Christ and the pattern of his life as set out in the Gospels which Winston is stressed. There is no need to look abroad for a God in some place of glory that cannot be known till the body be laid in the dust. What is required is that you do not look for God now as formerly you did to be a place of glory beyond sun, moon and stars, nor imagine a divine being you know not where, but you see him ruling within you, and not only in you, but you see and know him to be the spirit and power that dwells in every man and woman. When Stanley demonstrated the priority he gave to the ethical in answering the question he posed, what is it to walk righteously or in the sight of reason? Reason um, uh, is when Stanley's way of describing God imminent in humankind. And his answer echoes themes from the Gospel of Matthew, especially from a well-known passage in Matthew 25. First, when a man lives in all acts of love to his fellow creatures, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, relieving the oppressed, seeking the preservation of others as well as himself, looking upon himself as a fellow creature, though he be lord of all creatures, to all other creatures of all kinds, and so doing to them as he would have them do to him, to this end, that the creation may be upheld and kept together by the spirit of love, tenderness and oneness, and that no creature may complain of any act of unrighteousness and oppression from him. Secondly, when a man loves in the knowledge and love of the Father, seeing the Father in every creature, and so loves, delights, and obeys, and honours the Spirit which he sees in the creature, and so acts rightly towards that creature, in whom he sees the Spirit of the Father for to rest, according to its measure. Throughout his writing, when Stanley used apocalyptic imagery to interpret the political realities of his day. For example, the four beasts arising out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7, when Stanley interpreted as different facets of the oppressive power of an unjust and unequal society. Thus, the first beast is royal power, by, which by force makes a way for the economically powerful to rule over others making the conquered a slave, giving the earth to some, denying the earth to others. The second beast is the power of laws, which maintain power and privilege in the hands of the few by the threat of imprisonment and punishment. The third beast is what Winstanley calls the thieving art of buying and selling the earth with the fruits one to another. And the fourth beast is the power of the clergy, power which is used to give a religious or ideological gloss to the privileges of the few. According to Winstanley, the creation will never be at peace until these four beasts are overthrown. This will be the moment when humankind will be enlightened. When they are, it will be when, I quote, Christ the anointing spirit rises up and enlightens mankind. And the, the beasts make way for Christ's universal love to take the kingdom and the dominion of the whole earth. But, as is the case throughout his writing, for overthrowing the four beasts of Daniel, this does not come by force, but political change, which is inspired by example and transformation of attitudes. Indeed, his summons is, come, make peace with the cavaliers, your enemies. Let the oppressed go free. Let them have a livelihood and love your enemies and do to them as you would have them done to you if they had conquered you. Let love wear the crown. This great leveller, Christ, our King of righteousness in us, shall cause men to beat their swords into plowshares 
and spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall learn war no more, and everyone shall delight to let each other enjoy the pleasures of the earth, and shall hold each other no more in bondage. If Winstanley applied the book of Daniel to the royal, legal, and ecclesiastical powers of his day, Blake used the prophetic book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, one of Blake's favorite biblical books. And indeed, his earliest biographer wrote that the book of Revelation, which may well be supposed to engross much of Mr. Blake's study, seems to have directed him in common with the works of John Milton. Blake's view of politics in the 1790s is expressed in the caption printed above the images there. To defend the Bible in this year, 1798, would cost a man his life. The beast and the whore rule without controls, references to Revelation 13 and 17. The words come from Blake's annotations to a book by the Bishop of Landaff, which he owned, which was a critique of Tom Paine's view of the Bible. The left-hand image on the screen there, you can't see the, the writing all that well. Um, uh, at the heart of it are not Blake's words, but the words of Edward Young, uh, which uh, uh, Blake illuminated round the, round the side. And the design Blake created is based on the book of Revelation and Babylon seated on the many-headed beast. We see the heads of the beast on which Babylon is seated identified there with ecclesiastical powers down the side there, um, royal power, military power, and at the end here, legal power. The right-hand image here is from uh, Blake's Jerusalem and shows Revelation 17, depicts the mystery, Babylon the Great, the abomination of desolation, purveying what Blake describes as religion hid in war. Indeed, Blake saw himself following in the prophetic footsteps of John of Patmos in his role as a prophet against empire. Those four stanzas here from Blake's preface to Milton, commonly known as Jerusalem, need no introduction from me. The words echo various biblical themes. For example, Elijah's chariot, John's vision of the new Jerusalem coming down to earth from heaven, and the spiritual and intellectual warfare mentioned at several points in the New Testament. The poem is a stirring summons to emulate the prophetic character in the spirit and power of Elijah. Indeed, Blake's fervent hope was that all the Lord's people would be prophets. And you notice here that Blake appended this quotation from the book of Numbers uh, to those famous stanzas which uh, we sing and, uh, 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 so lustily and know as Jerusalem. For Blake, the poetic or prophetic character is a human characteristic whose development in people he sought to kindle. Its stimulation ex expands the horizons of human imagination to avoid what he called a repeat of the same dull round over and over again. For Blake, prophecy didn't mean predicting what would happen in the future, but understanding more deeply what was going on, telling the truth as one saw it, whether concerning the hostile reaction of Britain to the American colonies or the resistance to change in the ancien regime of Europe. One example of Blake's prophetic critique is the ideological use of a holy book which runs like a thread throughout his work. This image from his Europe, a prophecy, demonstrates how Blake shows a monarchical pontifical divinity with a book open on his lap. In the caption, Blake wrote here, Albion's angel rose upon the stone of night. He saw you reason on the Atlantic in his brazen book that kings and priests had copied on earth, expanded from north to south. So the, the idea of a holy book being taken by kings and interpreted by priests in the interests of the few is something that Blake wants to criticize. 
There's a similar scene in the next image, but this time the image is not part of a series which is uh, a part of Blake's mythology, but a series illustrating the contents of a biblical book. Blake's illustrations of the book of Job, completed a few years before his death, offers a very distinctive form of biblical commentary in which a central image, as here, uh, is surrounded by um, biblical text, biblical references at the bottom, and as we shall see later on, uh, uh, around the sides as well, which have a subordinate position to the central image, which is what draws our attention. In this example, which is why I've included here, we see God as a divine monarch, transcendent, surrounded by the heavenly host with a book in his hand and below. Job and his wife discuss as they consult their books, surrounded as they are by their family. The opening plate of Blake's illustrations of the book of Job suggests that Blake interpreted the book of Job as a story of a conventionally pious man who is a creature of habit. Hence the quotation of the words here, words here, thus did Job continually. He's a devoted adherent to a holy book, uh, open on his lap, and Job's wife has one open on her lap too. And there they are in pious pose. But as the series goes on, illustrating the book of Job, um, Job, as a result of bitter experience, comes to a different understanding of God, a God who dwells not far off, but with and in humanity. Indeed, across the top, whoops, sorry, here, the top, there's the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, uh, which is uh, deemed to be an indication of this kind of transcendent theology um, that uh, Job had. That's Job's view at the outset of the story, from which the experience of suffering and vision helped deliver him. The climactic moment of Blake's interpretation of the book of Job comes when God appears to Job in the whirlwind. Blake understood the meaning of this theophany to be Job coming face to face with Christ as Jehovah, picking up a theme which he'd enunciated years before in the marriage of heaven and hell. Underneath, here, he quotes from Job 42.5, I have heard thee with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. A moment of vision. Here, uh, he, what, it's, it's not just what he's heard uh, from others, but now he come face to face, um, uh, God with him. Those words from Job 42 dominate the textual commentary on this page and are key to Blake's interpretation of the book of Job as a whole. In both of these images, for the first time in the series, what we find is the open book which we had seen uh, uh, open on the laps of uh, Job and his wife and indeed the divinity. But now what we can see is the writing in the book. And the writing in the book in the frames uh, are a series of quotations from uh, the New Testament. In the left-hand image, there's a selection of texts from the Gospel of John in which the incarnate Christ dwells with and in those who see God in Jesus indicating that God is not far off, but with and in Job and his wife. So, texts like, I am in my Father, ye in me, and I in you. I and the Father are one. It should be noted in passing here that Blake, perhaps inspired by his long relationship with Catherine, his wife, includes Job's wife in the process of theological education throughout the series. Uh, in Job, Job's wife has not just a kind of walk-on part in one verse, but is there as a companion to Job through the, ex the experience. 
In the very next image in the series, which is this one on the screen here, Blake chose other words from Job 42. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. To indicate that it is at the moment that Job prays for his friends that his redemption is sealed. In addition to the vision of God, therefore, the practice of the forgiveness of sins is essential. Blake believed that the gospel is forgiveness of sins. The words open in the open book there are from Matthew 5. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Blake's life had none of the political activism of Win Stanley during his digger phase, but the earliest of his illuminated books coincide with the beginning of the French Revolution and its effects are evident in his texts and images. In 1790, the note he struck was entirely optimistic. For example, towards the end of the marriage of heaven and hell, there's the clarion call, empire is no more, and now the lion and wolf shall cease, for everything that lives is holy. Elsewhere, Blake insisted that the worship of God is honoring his gifts in other men each according to his genius, and loving the greatest men best. As the years went by, however, events in France and the war with Britain which ensued gave an altogether rather more somber perspective. This is from Europe of Prophecy. The words with which Europe of Prophecy ends, the strife of blood, accompanied by the image of rescue from the inferno, indicate Blake's changing perspective in the 1794 Europe of Prophecy. I've often thought that if we possessed only Blake's letters and none of his illuminated books, we would get the impression of an eccentric with visionary inclinations, who in many respects reflected the nonconformist piety of his day, rather than the outspoken creative artist of the illuminated books where contemporary politics and theology are criticized as a necessary means of cleansing the doors of perception, to use Blake's words. That said, the letters were addressed to patrons, potential and actual. Uh, Blake, after all, uh, had to make a living. When Blake had Jesus proclaim, thou art a man, God is no more, thy own humanity learned to adore, it was in a draft in his private notebook, and the heartfelt the beast and the whore rule without controls, which we saw in an earlier uh, image, is, as I pointed out, a marginal note in one of his books, so not for public consumption. The slogan, Our Image of God Must Go, at the start of John Robinson's Observer article of 1963, uh, in the year that I think Honest to God was published, captures something which I think is central to Blake's illustrations of the book of Job. At the heart of Blake's interpretation is that Job's image of God had to go to be replaced by an understanding of God in and with humanity. The heart of Robinson's thesis was that if Christianity was going to survive, it had to be relevant to a modern secular person, not just to I quote Robinson's words, the dwindling, dwindling number of religions. He wrote, our mental image of God must undergo a revolution. Christians had to de detach themselves from a view of God as the old man in the sky. Echoes here, well perhaps not echoes, but parallels here to Winstanley and Blake. It was the credibility of the supernatural framework for theology to which he directed his critique. He stressed his dependence on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's phrase, religionless Christianity, and quoted the words, if one day it becomes apparent that this is an a priori premise, the religious premise of man simply does not exist, but was an historical and temporary form of human expression, that is, if we reach the stage of being radically without religion, what does this mean for Christianity? Robinson's answer was the glad acceptance of secularization as a God-given fact. Fifty years ago this year, 
So three years after John Robinson's book in 1966 was published an article in Time magazine with the provocative title, Is God Dead? by Thomas Altizer, which heralded the publication that year of a book he wrote with William Hamilton entitled Radical Theology and the Death of God. Altizer and Hamilton regarded Robinson's book as not radical enough on theology, ethics and the church. The 1966 book, and indeed many of Thomas Altizer's writings, are related to the subject matter of this lecture, as, and this is the crucial point, as Althusser claimed the endorsement of Blake's texts and images for his own death of God theology, along with Hegel's philosophical theology. And he argued that for Blake, the incarnation signaled what he describes as the self-annihilation of God. And in particular, he used Blake's illustrations of the book of Job to make his point. Shortly before his death in 1968, Thomas Merton, who was himself profoundly influenced by Blake, wrote a perceptive review of what he calls modern radical theology. In Merton's view, Blake was certainly a radical Christian theologian, but he was not a pioneer of death of God theology. And I've, there's a, a long quotation here uh, from the review that he wrote uh, of uh, the writings about radical theology. We can certainly agree that Blake was a radical Christian in his belief that churches had perverted Christian truth and that the God of the Christian churches was really Blake's your reason nobody and even Satan, not the lover of man who empties himself to become identified with man, but a spectre whom man sets up against himself, investing him with the trappings of power which are not the things of God, but really the things that are Caesar's. He goes on, Blake's vision is a total integration of mysticism and prophecy, a return to apocalyptic faith which arises from an intuitive protest against Christianity's estrangement from its own eschatological ground. Blake saw official Christendom as a narrowing of vision, a foreclosure of experience and a future expansion, a locking up and securing of the doors of perception. He substituted for it a Christianity of openness, not seeking to establish order in life by shutting off a little corner of chaos and subjecting it to laws and to police, but moving freely between dialectical poles in a wild chaos, integrating sacred vision in and through the experience of fallenness as the only locus of creativity and redemption. Blake, in other words, calls for a whole new form of theological understanding. Like Merton, I don't think that Blake was asserting anything about the death of God, so much as Job being seen as a type of person who went through a profound change in his theological understanding from a transcendent God to a God who is with and in humanity, which I think is the point of that climactic plate in Blake's Job sequence. Blake and also when Stanley were suspicious of the effects of abstract theology. This world is the necessary context of what constitutes the Christian response. This shouldn't, after all, surprise us, for it is a repeated theme in the Bible. The Torah and the prophets focus on the demonstration of religion in lives lived. So, the words of Isaiah, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. In the New Testament, confessing the name and being part of an ecclesial community is not what counts. Understanding something of the identity of God comes through service to those who are the least of Christ's brothers and sisters. Indeed, as the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann puts it, Matthew chapter 25 suggests that the wretched, I quote, are the latent presence of the coming saviour and judge in the world, the touchstone which determines salvation and damnation. How best to love God whom we have not seen, to quote 1 John 4.20, comes through love of a brother or sister whom we have seen. 
the mutual indwelling of divine and human in their different forms in the Johannine and Pauline texts was picked up by Blake, as the Job illustration indicates. What do we find in Winstanley's and Blake's writings herald a theological trend which seems, in my view, still alive and well, if the very recently published book, Insurrectionist Manifesto, is anything to go by. I now wonder what David would have made of Thomas Merton's assessment of radical theology, not to mention its recrudescence in the Insurrectionist Manifesto. After all, David endorsed the philosopher Max Horkheimer's words, I quote, the death of God is the death of eternal truth. No one appreciated more than he did the tensions between transcendence and imminence, and in the New Testament, between present and future. Thus David wrote, I quote, imminence without transcendence suggests a harmony, coherence and integration, which ought not to be expected in this order of things. For here we have no continuing city. And, to quote again, transcendence without imminence suggests a notion of domination. Echoes there, I think, of Blake, which excludes participation and cooperation. David's was a much needed and original theological and polit particularly political voice. His early death robbed theology of one of its most distinguished political thinkers, as well as a great friend and pastor, and companion to many of us here. It's a great honor for me to remember a dear friend, 20 years on, in this annual lecture in his memory. Thank you.